What we're doing this week is talking, extending our conversation we started last week about how was Paul used as a figure in early Christianity. Today we're going to talk about the pastoral epistles, which is First and Second Timothy and Titus. And then next time we'll talk about the Acts of Paul and Thecla, because these are two practically opposite ways of interpreting Paul and using Paul that came about probably in the second century. The pastoral epistles are called pastoral because it presents Paul as writing to Tim Timothy and Titus, two of his followers, but he's telling them how to be good pastors of a church. He's, in fact, he's also uh, doing something like almost acting like they're going to be something what would, as would become a bishop, they are supposed to also be appointing other people as pastors of churches. So uh, we call these the pastoral epistles because it presents Paul as himself serving in a sort of pastoral role for his churches and assigning Timothy and Titus pastoral roles for his uh, churches also and establishing leadership positions, what kind of leadership structures he wants to go on in the churches. Most of us scholars believe that these letters are pseudonymous. We don't believe Paul wrote them. There's been some question in the last several years that maybe the actual historical Paul wrote 2 Timothy because 2 Timothy uh, looks sort of like a last will and testament of Paul that he may have written in prison. I, and then, but I don't tend to buy that. I tend to group all three of them together as being probably by the same author and all being pseudonymous. Why do we think they're pseudonymous? Well, again, as we saw with Ephesians and Colossians, the writing style in these letters is very different from the seven letters that scholars all agree Paul actually wrote. So the writing style is a big issue. But as I'll show today, there is a lot of way of seeing that these letters simply presuppose a different stage in early Christianity. They don't look like they're from the more primitive sort of time of when Paul was actually founding churches. So the, the theology looks different, the church structure looks different, as I'll talk about uh, positions on the household, on marriage, on slavery, on family, on women, all of these things are different. So I'm using the pastoral epistles in this lecture as one illustration of how Christianity changes in different uh, trajectories. One trajectory becomes uh, very much pro-household. The traditional Roman-style or Greco-Roman family uh, is promoted as the Christian way for families to be, and even the church itself is molded to look like a household with the paterfamilias, the head of the household on top, women below that, children and slaves below that. When we get to the Acts of Paul and Thecla, we'll see that that interpretation of Paul makes Paul anti-household. He actually is presented as going around preaching against marriage, against sex, against the Roman household, and preaching a very kind of hierarchical disrupting, even city, polis disrupting gospel, and certainly a household and family disrupting apostle. So these two trajectories of Pauline Christianity show the diversity of Christianity as it, as it developed and even how they used the same figure, Paul, as founder of Christianity uh, in radically different ways. When did these letters come about? It's everybody's guess. I, ac I actually tend to think that the pastoral epistles were probably written sometime in the second century and maybe even toward the middle of the second century. That's a bit later than a lot of scholars would put them uh, and we're just guessing anyway. We sort of have to imagine uh, what kind of level of early Christianity, what kind of phase of early Christianity do we imagine uh, taking place before we can get this kind of a letter 
uh, with this kind of theology and church structure written. It is interesting that when we, we talked about Marcion early, remember the, the, the heretic in Rome who made his own first canon list of New Testament books. Remember he included Luke as his gospel in his own edited version of it, and he included the letters of Paul. And Marcion, we don't have any evidence that Marcion actually knew about these three letters, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. If Marcion was writing in the middle of the second century, maybe Marcion, if he didn't mention them, maybe he didn't know them, and maybe that's evidence that they weren't yet highly circulated. Uh, so that's one of the things that people have talked about, the dating of these letters. Since Marcion didn't seem to know them, perhaps they were either just being written or not long written around the middle of the second century. What this author, first let me back up because I want to go through Paul really quickly and talk about uh, what Paul's own view of the household is. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 7. We've, we're going to review some things that we've gone on before, but keep your Bibles in front of you. So look at 1 Corinthians 7. First Corinthians 7, 1. Concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. But because of cases of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. Notice how Paul balances these things. He tells basically the man, you have control of the body of your wife, but he also tells to the woman, you have control of the body of your husband. So there's something of a reciprocity in 1 Corinthians 7. This will be important because that kind of reciprocity doesn't exist when you get to the pastoral epistles. So that's one thing to notice. Um, do not, um, verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a set time to devote yourselves to prayer. Come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This I say by way of concession, not of command. I wish, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has a particular gift from God, one having one kind and another different kind. Notice, he's basically saying, have sex within marriage. He's not condemning sex, but he really prefers that all Christians be single, like he himself is. So Paul's preference is not marriage and, se and sex within marriage. He, that's a concession that he gives for people that he says can't control themselves. Uh, to the unmarried and widows, I say that it is well for them to remain unmarried, as I am. But if they are not practicing self-control, they should marry. It is better to marry than to burn, is what the Greek actually says. It's better to marry than to burn. And this, that's been an interesting question with scholars. What does he mean by burn? Does he mean burn in hell? That it's better to marry than to be tempted to sin uh, with sex outside of marriage, and then you'd burn in hell? I've argued that what he means is burn with desire, because it was very common in ancient Greek culture to portray any kind of erotic desire as actually a physical burning. They even portrayed it as a disease. When you start having that itchy feeling that we all know so well, that's because your body is actually heating up. And that's what causes that desire. So the ancient Greek doctors, uh, Greek and Roman doctors, gave all kind of prescriptions to people to, to keep them to control that burning so they can control their erotic desire because they felt like it made you actually unhealthy. It was, desire was unhealthy and sexual activity was dangerous. So this was a concern throughout the ancient world, and I think that's what Paul's talking about. And what I've argued, and, and have uh, argued this in my Corinthian body book and a few other places, is that Paul actually prefers that people avoid sex entirely, Christians avoid sex entirely. If they can't avoid sex entirely and they're starting to have sexual desire burning in them and that gets dangerous, then they should get married and have sex, but he only to decrease the burning. Uh, what Paul wants is for them to experience sexual intercourse even in marriage, without any erotic desire. 
Now that's kind of a radical uh, idea, but I believe that's actually what Paul is teaching here, is that he conceives it possible that Christians could have sex without experiencing desire, and that's his goal. So notice, Paul doesn't have a very positive view of sex, uh, even within marriage. It's a concession he allows people. And notice, in none of this passage does he talk at all about having kids. Sexuality for Paul is not to make children, in, in Paul's own letters. Se you have sex in marriage only to keep you from desiring. That's Paul's concern. That will change later. So that's one place where we also saw in 1 Thessalonians 4, if you remember, we had the same kind of thing. There Paul is just talking to the men of the congregation, and he says, don't you start wanting your brother's wife. He calls them his, his, their schoolos, your vessel. He says, each, per, each of you should have your own vessel. And he, the debate is whether he's talking about their genitalia, which is one possible interpretation of the Greek, or their wife's body, which is another possible interpretation of the Greek. But for Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, he's telling men also, control yourself, and he says, not in passion of desire like the Gentiles. So there again in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul is really concerned that the Thessalonian disciples are not lusting after their, co their fellow Christian's wife. Hold, keep your own vessel, and that's how you control yourself. And notice again, he's excluding the idea of passion and desire. It just does not have a part in it. So this is, I admit that this is kind of a radical argument, and there's a lot of people out there who haven't bought my argument. But that seems to me to be precisely what the text is saying. Paul never allows for a good notion of sexual pleasure or sexual desire. He seems to want to exclude it in order to keep you from experiencing desire. And he believes that you can do that even by having sex. So in those ways we see Paul is not anti-marriage exactly, but he's certainly not pro-marriage. And he's not anti-sex exactly, but he certainly is not pro-sex. The one thing he does seem to be anti is desire, sexual desire. All right, what is Paul's, where do women fit in all this? I, I pointed out that in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul doesn't seem to think, think about women at all there. In fact, I even proposed when we, I lectured on 1 Thessalonians that by the time wrote, Paul wrote that letter, which is one of his earliest letters, maybe the earliest letter we have in the canon, Paul may have been conceiving of the Christian group as being sort of a male club because that's the way he tends to be talking to them, a male club of mainly working class manual laborers. That's changed by the time we get to 1 Corinthians, right? Because Paul directly talks about women a lot. He sees women as being in something like a co-relationship with their husbands and sexual activity in 1 Corinthians 7. He, he addresses women as leaders of churches at times. So but by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, uh, women very much are acknowledged as an important part of his churches. Let's see what he says, though. Uh, well, but in 1 Corinthians 11, Look there. He's not he doesn't have women on a completely equal stance with men, it's apparently. In 1 Corinthians 11, he says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions just as I handed them on to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of the wife, if God is the head of the, ch of the church. There's a clear hierarchy there. Now, Paul goes on to talk about what this is going to have to do with women veiling their heads when they pray and prophesy, which is another very complicated and, and uh, uh, controversial passage in Paul. But it's clear that Paul views, just as he views God as the head of Christ, that is, Christ of being a somewhat inferior person to, compared to God the Father, so women 
are in inferior position with regard to their husbands. So the Greek words here are not, they're, they're just the word for man and woman, but since the Greek doesn't have special terms for husband and wife, when you see a, a Greek term like this in this context, you have to make the decision. Are you going to translate this as man or woman and make this a generic kind of idea that women in general are supposed to be subordinated to men in general? Or do you take the terms and translate them husband and wife, both translations are fine as far as the Greek goes, and then you're taking that sort of inferiority subordination complex to be something that's talking about with husbands and wives. Look at 1 Corinthians 14. at verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only ones it has reached? That's odd. He seems to be telling women not to speak in church at all, although previously he had given instructions for how they could pray and prophesy in church as long as they aren't wearing a veil. What is going on here? And also then this, doesn't this have something to say, does have something of a conflict with Galatians 3.28, which is a famous verse in which Paul says, in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, there's no male, uh, free or slave, there's no male and female. Now that verse has been interpreted especially since the 1970s as teaching that Paul taught the equality of men and women in Christ. If in Christ there's no male and female, doesn't that mean they're equal? Yes, sir. Galatians 3.28. So this has been the, the, an argument. This is why I'm, I'm talking about the stuff that those of you who are writing papers this week need to talk about. But notice, this is complex. You've got Galatians 3.28 that looks like an egalitarian statement, except a very famous biblical scholar, hmm, wrote an article arguing that Galatians 3.28 is not an egalitarian statement because Paul was talking about in the resurrection, human being, Christians will be androgens, that they'll be male-female uh, combinations. And in that male-female combination, the masculinity is still superior to femininity, even in the androgen body of the resurrection. So that's... Is, is Galatians 3.28 an egalitarian statement by Paul? Some people say yes. Is it not an egalitarian statement by Paul? I say it's not. But that's a complicated argument also. And if, first, if Galatians 3.28 is an egalitarian statement, how does that fit then with this 1 Corinthians 14 passage where Paul seems to be saying women should be silent in church and, and be subordinate? Ask your husband at home. Did, you, did any of you notice that those verses I just read in 1 Corinthians 14 are in some translations in brackets, in parentheses? How many people have a translation of 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 36 that's in either brackets or parentheses? Raise your hand. How many people have a translation where they're not in brackets or parentheses? Anybody? Okay, so some of you don't have them in brackets. That's showing you that these editors are not sure whether that was actually part of the original letter. There's a dispute here. If you looked at your footnotes of your Bible, your footnotes might even say some ancient authorities don't include this or include these verses in a different place. And so this is the issue. And we do have some Greek texts, some Greek manuscripts, that either don't have these verses or have them in a different place in the text. 
Well, how would that happen? Well, the idea goes that some scribe at some point was copying over 1 Corinthians 14 and got to the point where this is in the text and wrote out in the margin, well, wait a minute, this is not right because, of course, the scribes are living at a later time when women definitely were in a more inferior position in churches. They couldn't be priests, they couldn't be bishops, and this sort of thing. And that scribe writes in, well, no, of course, women can't do that. So there's a little note that occurs there on the margins of the text. Other scribes come along and find this manuscript, and they decide, well, that shouldn't be out here in the margin. That should go into the text someplace. So one scribe, copying it over, puts that uh, excerpt in this part of the text, and another one puts it in this part of the text in different places. And then those manuscripts are copied over by other scribes, and you end up with the Greek manuscripts with this little, these verses in different places in 1 Corinthians 14. So some scholars have said, that all looks like those verses that teach the subordination of women in 1 Corinthians 14 were not originally by Paul, but were a later scribal interpolation, insertion into the text. Other, other scholars disagree with that, and they think that these two verses, these verses were original with 1 Corinthians 14. In other words, I've given you a lot of problems to deal with. If you're going to talk about what was Paul's view of women, you've got to figure out, well, what do you think Galatians 3.28 really teaches? Is it an egalitarian statement or not? Is 1 Corinthians 14, these verses, that part of Paul's original teaching or not? And then you've got the situation where in like Romans 16, several verses in Romans 16, Paul actually addresses women as leaders of churches. So there are places where Paul is willing to talk to women as leaders of churches. In fact, one of the verse in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul addresses two people, Andronicus and Junia, and he says, these are esteemed among the apostles. Among the apostles. That sounds like he's actually saying that Andronicus and Junia are themselves apostles. So, and Paul thinks he, himself, the apostles in Paul's view doesn't include just the 12, right? Because he thinks he's an apostle and he's not one of the 12. So the, the word apostle for Paul is wider than the 12. And it refers to people who go out and spread the gospel. So apparently, Paul is calling two people, Andronicus and Junia, apostles in Romans 16. Interestingly enough, that word Junia, that might be in your translation as Junia nowadays. But in older English versions, it was translated as Junius, which would be a man's name. In Latin, if you add an S on that word, it looks like a man's name. If you don't have the S, it looks like a woman's name. And there was de debate among scholars about how to translate it. It looks the same, basically, in, in Greek because of the way the word occurs in the sentence. But when you translated it, are you going to make it a man's name or a woman's name? And people had always made it a man's name. Why? Because scholars just thought, of course, all these scholars are men themselves throughout hundreds of years. They thought, well, you can't have a woman apostle, so it must be a man's name. And in the 70s, some feminist feel, uh, biblical scholars came along and pointed out that Junius is a very, very, very rare man's name. But Junia is a very common woman's name, and argued again through textual criticism that Paul originally was addressing a woman, Junia. And now you have basically most scholars admitting that this is a woman, it's a woman's name, Paul was addressing a man, Andronicus, and a woman, Junia, and calling them both apostles. There's some, there's some uh, evidence that Paul actually doesn't have such a negative view of women if he's going to allow them to have leadership roles in his churches. So you've got Paul in a rather confusing situation. Is Paul a feminist? 
is he for egalitarian uh, uh, theology with women, men and women? How does this relate to these different issues that come up in his letters? But those are Paul's basic views of both divorce, I mean, of both uh, marriage and the family and sex, and the roles of women. And often in early Christianity, in the history of Christianity, these two things go together. What a, what a text is going to teach about the role of women in the church and in the world often has something to do with what it teaches about the family. And most of the time, when a text is really, really pro-family, they teach the subordination of women more directly. And when they're anti-family, they often tend to allow women bigger roles in their congregations. So it's kind of a pairing that goes along. And that's exactly what we'll see this week when we see the pastoral epistles that take Paul down the pro-family, anti-woman route, and the Acts of Paul and Thecla, which takes Paul down the anti-family, pro-woman route. Okay, so let's look at the pastorals. First, what is this author in 1 Timothy attacking? And I'm going to spend most of my time in 1 Timothy because that's where I can get these examples. A lot of this stuff occurs in the letter to Titus also because the letter to Titus repeats a lot of the stuff that's in the first letter of Timothy. In 1.3, I urge you as I did when I was in, on my way to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach any different doctrine not to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies that promote speculations rather than the divine training that is known by faith. So myths and vain discussions and genealogies. Uh, he, in 4.7 he talks about godless and silly myths. Titus 1.10 and 14 also. And then he also in Titus says that he's against people who are teaching circumcision and Jewish myths, he calls them. But what are these myths? Well, we're not really sure. Are these sort of uh, Gnostic-type myths about different, many different gods doing things and having to placate those gods in order to reach the highest god, as we've seen in some Gnostic texts uh, that we talked about earlier in the semester? We don't know. But there's some kind of stories about either angels or gods that some people are teaching, and this author is writing against it. And, uh, some, and some aspect of something's Jewish about this he doesn't like. Look at 4, 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, in the latter days, some will renounce the faith by paying attention to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared with a hot iron. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So this author is against people who are challenging marriage. He's against people who are, who are promoting some kind of ascetic behavior with regard to food, so avoiding certain <laughs> kinds of foods. Is this kashrut? Maybe he's talking about people who are teaching uh, people not to eat pork, not to eat shellfish. Are they teaching Jewish food laws? He's not explicit. So he's against people who are teaching that. He's against people who are forbidding marriage and teaching any kind of dietary um, restrictions. Look at 5.23. This is when he tells Timothy, no longer drink only water, but take a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Why does he have to tell somebody to drink some wine and not just drink water? Well, because there were ascetics who taught to avoid wine in the ancient world. That was one of those things that very strict ascetics might decide to avoid was wine and rich food. So this author 
says to Timothy, nope, you should drink wine. This was our favorite verse when I grew up in a church that didn't allow drinking, of course. I always like to throw this one back at the elders of the church. Look at 6.20. 1 Timothy 6.20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid the profane chatter and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. What is the Greek word for knowledge? Pardon? Gnosis, exactly. See, you're getting more than you paid for in this course. You didn't know you were going to learn Greek. You're getting some good cocktail party information and even some Greek language. So gnosis is the word for, for knowledge here. And uh, this guy's saying he's attacking people who are going around boasting about falsely called knowledge. Again, that's led some scholars to say, is he talking about some kind of Gnosticism? Is that what he's opposing? That would go along with this idea that they're using this word gnosis in ways he doesn't like. They're teaching myths. They're teaching asceticism. They're teaching the avoidance of marriage. Well, that does look a bit like early, other early Christian, second century Christian groups, some of whom their opponents would call Gnostics. But we don't have enough information to be ready, easy to tell. Now look at one more text. This is 2 Timothy 2.18. Oh, let's see. Yeah, he's talking about, he's actually giving some names of people he doesn't like. In 2.18 he says, These people have swerved from the truth by claiming that the resurrection has already taken place. Ah, he's, he's condemning that. So remember how... I even talked about with Colossians and Ephesians last time, you had this idea that uh, they almost sound like the resurrection has already taken place. In your baptism with Christ, you have been raised with Christ. And maybe there are other people wandering around the second century, Christians saying that you've already been raised from the dead, you've already experienced resurrection. This author really condemns that. He wants to say, no, the resurrection hasn't taken place yet. So he's condemning, he's condemning false teachers for all kinds of uh, different activities and teachings that he doesn't like. So we're seeing a definite split here between different kinds of Paulinism. There's a Paulinism represented by these texts, which is pro-family, pro-marriage, uh, pro-procreation. We'll talk about, see later that he's, he's for having children and mentions this explicitly. Um, Anti-asceticism, against, uh, you know, con forcing people to control what they eat, uh, and these sorts of things. And this idea about maybe Jewish myths being something and the, the teaching of the resurrection. 1 Timothy 1.9 then gets us into another issue. What is the law and what is this author's take on it? 1.9. This means, now 1.8, I'll start with verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it legitimately. Now of course that could be quotation right out of Romans, right? Because Romans itself has Paul says the law is good. This means understanding that the law is laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, or murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. That contradicts the, gracious, the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Notice, this guy doesn't have really a problem with the law that we've seen sometimes in Paul's writings. The law is basically just a set of rules in, that designed to keep people who can't control themselves in line. And in fact, he goes on to say that if you're a good person, you don't even need to worry about the law. 
Now this is, again, different from what Paul's view is. Paul did not want his, his Gentile followers to keep the Jewish law. And Paul said in Romans, the law is good. But Paul, for Paul, the law is still this cosmic entity almost that, that, was, that invaded history. This is very much when Galatians. Remember when we, I gave the lecture on Galatians and Romans? I talked about how the, the Jewish law for Paul is not simply a list of rules. It was this thing that came into the cosmos as an invader. It enslaved humanity. It was the pedagogue that you know, swatted humanity down when humanity was in its child's, childish state. The law is, is, obeying the law for Paul is equal to trying to worship the stoicheia of the cosmos, these elemental spirits of the universe. So the law for Paul isn't simply a list of rules. The law for Paul is a very ambiguous cosmic entity. It's, almost, it's just mythological in a sense for Paul. For this author, that's not what the law is. The law, you don't need to obey it, he says, and he's against uh, teaching his Gentile converts to keep the Jewish law, but he just says it's not important. It's only for people who, who are sinners, who can't control themselves. As long as you're not a sinner, as long as you don't do this list of things that I can give you, you don't need to concern yourself about the law. So this is another one of the reasons that people like me say, this is not Paul writing. People who believe Paul wrote these letters would say, well, they're written years later, it's to a different context, and Paul changed his mind, or Paul's nuancing his message differently for a different context. So there are scholars who would defend these letters as being by Paul, and that's what they would say. I look at it and I say, that's so not like Paul. It's a totally different view of the law and its role in the cosmos than you see in Romans or Galatians, which is another piece of evidence for me that Paul's not the author of this letter. Paul's, the, the strategy then of this author, he's trying to argue against all kinds of myths and practices that, that somebody's going through Paul's churches and teaching. So he writes a letter in Paul's name, seemingly addressed to, this, to Paul's follower Timothy, and he lays out what he doesn't like about that. But that's not the, all of his strategy, because what is his strategy for combating these things that he considers false teachings? First, he makes the church itself a household. Now, this is where all that lecturing in the first part of the semester, when I talked over an argument, what is the patriarchal household? What is the Roman household? What is the paterfamilias? What is the structure of the household? What is the patron-client relationship? What is the role of wives and women in the household and children and slaves? All of that was because when you get to some of these early aspects of early Christianity, this author is using the Roman household as the model for the church itself. That wasn't the way Paul did it, right? Paul never talked about the church as if it just had the same structure of a household. He didn't talk about men always being on top of the leadership organization, and he didn't, didn't promote marriage very much. Not what this author does, 3.15. I hope to come, this is 3.14, 1 Timothy 3.14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. The church is the household of God. The same thing happens in 1 Timothy 5, the beginning of 1 Timothy 5. Do not speak harshly to an older man. Speak to him as a father, to younger men as brothers, to older women as mothers, to younger women as sisters, with absolute purity. Notice he's got everybody in the church has some familial role. Older guys are fathers. Your uh, younger men in the church are your brothers. Younger women, sisters, older women, mothers. Everybody has a household role 
in the church. This is a different, we, we might think this is automatic, but notice this is not treating the church as an ecclesia, that Greek word that we translate church. Where did the term ecclesia come from? Do you remember? In Greek, what does the term ecclesia originally refer to in classical Greek? The assembly of the city. It's the assembly of the city-state that came together for political purposes and to vote. It comes out of the Greek democracy with its notions of, of, uh, of some, some kind of equality among citizens and all the, at least the men citizens getting a vote. So it's important that early Christians, for some reason, chose this word ecclesia to describe their house churches. It was ridiculous. An outsider would have, might have thought, this is kind of ridiculous. You're using the term that people would have heard as the town assembly for a few people who can fit into one dining room? It's kind of, you know, a, a seating more importance to yourself than you really should. But I think it's important that early Christian groups use that term for themselves. Why didn't early Christian groups call themselves synagogues? That was a term already in use by Jews. It would have been a normal term to use. But we don't find many early Christians using the term synagogue for their groups. We do find them using ecclesia very quickly. But an ecclesia isn't a household. What this author is doing is shifting in a not so subtle way, understanding these house groups as being more like town assemblies and making them look more like Roman households. Then also then ro men have certain roles then. First Timothy 2, 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also that the women should pray, lifting up holy hands without argument. No, Dale's lying to you again. The women should dress themselves modestly, decently, in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided. Girls, you listening? Or with gold, pearls, or expensive clothes but with good works as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Now, that's kind of a, this is something that uh, my mom used to hate it when they'd preach about this in church. And also it's controversial. Does it mean that she's saved in, from the dangers of childbirth? That's one way of reading it. She'll be saved from the dangers of childbirth if she lives a pious or holy life. Or a bit more of a radical way of reading it would be to say, her, by having babies, women help constitute their own salvation. That having children is one way that women save themselves. Either way you look at it, this author really wants women to be in a sub subordinate role, silent in church. They can't have <coughs> any leadership authority or teaching authority over a man. As we'll see, they do have some offices. There are roles that women can play in the pastoral epistles, but not in authority over men. And then there's this odd thing about childbearing that somehow, and I think what it means is that childbearing actually can help save women uh, from their uh, sins in some way. So that's the way women have to be modestly dressed, no jewelry, save through childbearing. In order to maintain this kind of household structure, a very hierarchical household structure, this author sets up offices in the church. And here's another reason we call these the pastoral epistles, because he's setting up pastoral offices. 
Look in 3, 1 through 7. The saying is sure, whoever aspires to the office of bishop desires a noble task. Now a bishop, anybody have a different translation for what I just read as bishop? Overseer, yes, overseer's a translation. Anybody have a different translation? Because the word bishop here is, it's the, the Greek word is episkopos, where we get the English word bishop and you get the name for the Episcopal Church because it's a church that has, has bishops. Um, it, in Greek, it basically means an overseer, someone in charge. The bishop must be above reproach, married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an apt teacher, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive and respectful in every way. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? Again, the church is a household. If you're going to be the bishop over the church, you have to be married, because how can you manage the household of the church if you can't prove it by managing your own household well? He must not be a recent convert, blah, 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 blah. So the bishop or the episcopos is already himself now a male head of household. The other office he talks about in 517, let the elders, now just as the word we're translating bishop or overseer comes from the Greek word episcopos. The Greek for elder here is presbyteros, presbyter. And this is where the Presbyterian Church gets the name of his church. They're Presbyterians because the Presbyterian Church rejected the use of bishops, like they found in the Catholic and the Anglican churches, and chose a plurality of elders. So they're called elders in the Presbyterian Church. And the Presbyterian Church comes from this Greek word, uh, meaning elder, presbyteros. And this is actually, this came to be later in English the name for a bishop who was not just the the head of a p one particular church, but became the head of a series of churches, a bunch of churches. That is, the bishop now is not the head of one church, but the head of a whole diocese. That, that is a grouping, a geographical grouping. So the, the words changed a bit, but this bishop comes from this word, and presbyteros turned into the word priest. So an one of the suggested etymologies for where the, the English word priest came from is from this Greek word itself. So you can kind of say presbyteros, Presbyteros, presbyter, presbyter, priest, right? <laughs> priest. This kind of happens in English over, you know, a few hundred years. So elders uh, also have to um, have, you know, wives, be family men, all this sort of thing. There are other offices too. Look at, real quickly, we're going to go through this. Deacons, 3 8. Deacons, likewise, must be serious, not double-tongued, not indulging in much wine, not greedy for money. They must hold fast to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them first be tested, then if they prove themselves blameless, let them serve as deacons. Women, likewise, must be serious. Now, there's an exegetical problem. Does this women refer to women who will themselves independently be deacons? In other words, is he allowing women to be deacons on their own? Or is this supposed to be taken to be just the wives of the male deacons, that they're called deacons also, or deaconesses? The word for deacon here comes from the Greek word diakonos. See, diakonos, deacon, diakonos, deacon. Comes into English directly. So, and that word just means a servant, someone who serves or ministers. So the women in 311, some exegetes would say this shows that this author does allow at least women to, have to be roles as deacons. 
deaconesses, and they have certain kinds of roles. Uh, let, verse 12, let deacons be married only once. Let them manage their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves. So notice, in the beginning, all of these uh, roles, whether it's the elder, presbyter, or the bishop, and there's some debate about whether presbyter it refers to the same role as a bishop in these letters. They seem to be combined in some of the later pastoral letters, or whether they refer to two separate offices. So there's a bit of a debate. But anyway, all of these people, whether you're, you're talking about bishops, presbyters, deacons, they all are required to be married, and all are required to have children. So in the beginning of early Christianity, see, you did not have the celibate ministry. The celibate ministry comes about uh, later. And, but this is in line with this author's uh, intention to set up the church as a household structure with men on top, women having their own roles. Now there are other roles here uh, too. Look at five, three and through 10. Honor widows, this is 1 Timothy 5, 3. Honor widows who are really widows. If a widow has children or grandchildren, they should first learn their religious duty to their own family and make some repayment to their parents, for this is pleasing in God's sight. The real widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give these commands as well so that they may be above reproach. Whoever does not provide for relatives and especially for family members has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now it gets really interesting. Let a widow be put on the list. Let her be registered. Ah, this is a way of, it, it seems like he's actually creating another kind of office in the church that is the office of widows. And sure enough, in Christianity later, widow became almost like an office in early Christianity. They could be, they could be registered and they received financial help from the churches. Let a widow be put on the list if she is not less than 60 years old and has been married only once. Notice over and over here we've seen this thing about being married once. Apparently this author believes in marriage and wants people to be married, but his ideal is that people should be married once. You, shouldn't, you certainly should not be divorced and remarried. Paul himself uh, forbids people in his church from, be, from being divorced and remarried, as we saw in 1 Corinthians uh, 11. But this author seems to say that if you're married and your spouse dies, he still kind of prefers that these women be married once. He also said that the bishop or the, uh, the presbyters should be men who are married only once. So multiple marriage is really frowned on, even though marriage itself is highly valued. This led to what is currently the practice in many of the Eastern churches, Eastern Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox. They do not forbid their priests from being married, but you have to be married before you become a priest. So you'll have a lot of young men in Greece or Russia who are going to become priests, and they want to quickly get married right out of seminary. So they're looking around for a partner, because if they become ordained as a priest and they're not married, they're expected to stay unmarried. And if their wife dies after they become a priest, they're expected to stay celibate and single for the rest of their lives also. So this led to the tradition in Eastern Christianity that you can be a married priest, unlike the Roman Catholic Church, but only if you get married before you become a priest. And it kept this idea of being married once only. So I can't go into the rest of this, but notice how this whole hierarchy of man and woman in the household, old and young, 
is also extended to children and slaves. Already in Colossians and Ephesians, we had what we call the household, household codes. Ma masters, treat your slaves well. Slaves, be obedient to your masters. Husbands, treat your wives well. Wives, submit to your husbands. Uh, children, submit to your fathers. Fathers, treat your children. So these are called household codes. And already in Colossians and Ephesians, they set up the household in a clear, hierarchical, patriarchal situation. That is intensified in the pastoral epistles. You have much longer household codes. And whereas in Colossians and Ephesians, that those writers at least said there was some reciprocity. They would, they would address the slaves. You have to obey the master. But they would also address the master and say, treat your slaves well. When you get the pastoral epistles, they left out the reciprocity. It's mainly directed to the slaves, to the children, to the wives, saying, submit. So this is the strategy that this writer uses to combat the forms of Christianity that he doesn't like is to construct the house, the church, as a rigid patriarchal household in which each person has a role. Even young women, he says, they're not supposed to be enrolled as widows. If you have one woman, young women who are widows and they start running around gossiping, getting in a lot of trouble, he says, get them married off again. <laughs> old women, of course, you couldn't marry off again. There are not enough old men around in the ancient world to marry them off. So you, he creates this structure by which women, older women, get pulled back into the household by this role as widows. No matter what happens to a woman in this author, uh, author's view, they have to be put back into their submissive place in the household structure, even if that means creating a new role for them called widows. This is this strategy this author uses to bring Paul into his own time. He's taking a Paul that we've seen is a bit different from this, and he's reinventing Paul for a second century Christian environment and restructuring the church as a household. We'll see an author on Wednesday doing precisely the opposite with Paul. See you next time.